out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello. And welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the American-based band, The Cucumbers, because I very recently spoke to Dina Shoshkis to find out more about life, love and poetry. And also, they have a new album coming out titled Old Shoes. This is the first collection of new material for almost over two decades. So we're going to hear all about that and the creative journey of the band. So after several minutes of interest and that slightly casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Dina, it's over to you. I had several. I guess when I was, a, I had older sisters when I was a little girl in the 60s. Um, I was influenced by the records that they bought, the Beatles and the girl group sound. Yes. And then um, when I developed my own taste, like, as I when I was a teenager, I was totally into Joni Mitchell. Wow. And, um, and then when I I started writing songs, I um I was in, totally inspired by the Talking Heads, the B-52s, and Lou Reed. Right. Nice mix. So did your you mentioned sisters? Did you have any did your parents have any musical influence on you at all? Did they did they shape your musical world? My parents loved classical music. Right. And, um, they 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 gave me piano lessons and brought me to a lot of concerts. Uh, but as far as pop music, they had no idea. But um, <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was their generation. My father played violin. Yes. And what was your sister's record collection like? Oh, um, well... Let's see, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Cream, Van Morrison, the Youngbloods, uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash as they got a little older. Yes. So were they kind of, did they veer into that world of hippiedom and the counterculture during that late 60s period? Yeah, definitely. Right. I had three of them. So one of them did. Not <laughs> one of them was sort of very conservative, but it was sort of like they she was on one side of the divide, and then the one who came after her was the other. But yeah, the the two afterwards were total hippies. Right, God, that's a, some interesting conversations around the dinner table, wasn't there? So, um, <laughs> yes. So Joni Mitchell, yeah. So wait, how old were you when you discovered the work of Joni? Oh, I must have been like. Um, 14 or 15 and I just learned all her songs all her albums could sing every everything yes because which um because it was kind of I, I, it was a bit later when I sort of got um caught in spark and blue alongside Van Morrison's Moondance and Astral Weeks so they were the two albums I started with and then I sort of branched out to things like the hissing of summer lawns and Hajara, which I really love as well. Which were your go-to Joni albums? Oh, Blue for sure. Hajara. I loved the earlier ones. Um, the first two, um, the one that had clouds on it. And then the yes. one before, I think it's called Songs to a Seagull. Right. I'm not really sure of that album name, but I loved those early ones. I loved um, Chelsea Morning. Woke up, it was a oh, Chelsea. Yeah. 
And, um, and I, was, I don't know if that was the same song, the one that starts with, I, I'll find someone to love today. It was a really sort of, you know, very um, minimalist instrumentation to it. But I don't know if it was called, oh God, I can't remember. But um, yes, woke up and thought I'd find someone to love today. I think that was the line. But anyway, I should have practiced that beforehand, shouldn't I really? So, <laughs> so when you got to 16, did you leave school Did you, or did you go to college on that point? Yes, I went to college, Brown University, which is where I met my husband, John, who is my collaborator. Yes. And we started playing songs together at the local, at the coffee house on campus, but we didn't write our own songs. And we played a lot of, oh, um, James Taylor and Joni Mitchell and um, folk folk rock kind of things. Yes. And then it was then the like new wave movement sort of hit while we were in college. And we actually the the talking heads had had graduated from the Rhode Island School of Design, which was right next door to where we went to college. And so on their tour, I think it was like 1978 or something. They came and they played at our university and it was sort of like a homecoming for them. And we went to this concert and we were just stunned. It was like, oh, my God, it was uh, somehow we identified like there were nerdy people making music, you know, <laughs> original music. And it's like, oh, wow, we could do this. And that's that really seeing that concert really inspired us to write write our own songs. Yes, absolutely. Suddenly, I mean, you never you never sort of part with your um did Carol King Tapestry album also fit in that collection as well of yours? Oh, definitely. That was up there. That yeah. was up there with James Taylor and Joni. What about <laughs> Van what about Van Morrison? Did he also enter your life? Well, that my sister um Annie had used to have well, my parents would go off for the weekend and sort of leave us alone. And Annie would invite all her friends over. And I just remember they'd play uh, Van Morrison really, really loud and turn all the lights off. And there was a lot of drinking and dancing. And <laughs> I thought it was really exciting. Yes, well, absolutely. We, I mean, it's good times. So as the 80s progressed, you were in that post-punk world of Talking Heads and various other nerdy bands and then sort of, you know, the early 80s, we, in this country, I suppose, that was that moment where indie pop hits with bands like the Smiths. Did they have an influence on you at all? Did those kind of any of those British bands like Echo and the Bunny Men, U2, Simple Minds, did they sort of filter into your musical narrative? I loved them. They were in, they were always playing um, in the world that I was in, like all the clubs that we toured in the DJs were always playing their current songs. So it was part of the the vibe all around us at the time. Yes. And loved, I loved that sound. I loved the more dance pop sound. Although I do have to say that when we started, we were a total guitar band and we were, we didn't care for synthesizers. And, and um, so we were, you know, we that that music a lot of that was that dance pop music had heavy synthesizers and program yes. programming and stuff and that wasn't what we were into but I did love and I loved 
any music you can dance to. Yes, absolutely. No, I was a bit, I was a bit uptight in the eighties, a little bit, <laughs> quite a lot really. Um, but so you know, I didn't like the new romantic um, sound at all, that kind of electronic sound. And but now I realise some of the music's quite good, so um, I've become a bit more relaxed in life. That's age for you, though, isn't it? So when did you had you left university when you when you started the band, or were you still at college or university when the band started? Um, we graduated and moved in together, and my and John had his friend who he'd grown up playing guitar with and had had a duo with. Um, when he when he was in high school came to visit and they pulled out their guitars and they were jamming and I didn't want to watch even though I didn't play guitar at the time and um, I knew enough about music I told you I've had piano lessons and also you know from singing and I played a lot of um, in a, different ensembles in college um, that I just said let me let me jam along and so the first night we wrote a song and then the next night we were invited um, to a party and we we brought our instruments. And so I sort of like had my first gig the next day. And um, and then we, we just spent this whole extended time jamming together and John recorded it all on a cassette recorder. And he's very good at listening to hours and hours of Space Jam and finding like, the four bars of music that are really great and yes. really so he did that he found four perfect bars of music and and took um words that i had written um back this was back in the day of typewriters and i used to just type things and i had a pile of of papers on my desk and he put he pulled out a pile a sheet from the pile and he set those words to music, and that song was called "My Boyfriend." Right, and, that's the the opening track on your four track EP called "The Cucumbers." Right. Yes, so that's first song. That's how it got written. Oh wow, that's amazing! So, with that release that came out in nineteen eighty three, was that is that the version that you recorded? Is that the one that ended up on the EP as well? Oh no. <laughs> that, <laughs> That was just like a jam session. Right. So the, then the um well we played it and it it we never wrote another verse really. Um and we just um we we met up with David Young, who I told you about before yes. recording, um, who he he's a really great musician and he was playing guitar in John Cale's band and he also loved producing and and um we met through mutual friends so he worked with us and he he taught us how to record we didn't know really yeah to, yeah <laughs> we didn't know you know about counting off and letting your guitars ring and and just the basics so oh. so did you get so like you know quite a bit of attention quite quickly with your sort of the band and the sound and that first single. We did. We um we lived in Hoboken and um in Hoboken there's a wonderful club called Maxwell's and all the touring bands um that were coming through New York would pick up an extra gig 
at Maxwell's because it was right across the river. And so there was like REM, um, the replacements. Um, I could go on and on. I'm, I'm trying to remember the sequence of the years, but it was a very exciting scene connected to the national scene. And there was a local scene too. And um, we, our friends had a literary magazine and they had a benefit at Maxwell's and they invited us to play. Right. And um, so the owner of Maxwell's heard us and he loved us. So based on playing at this benefit, he gave us our first gig. And that very first official gig was reviewed in two different publications. So it was like, whoa, all of a sudden we were launched. We were part of this, this exciting scene. Yes, including the New York Times, I believe. Right, that came a little bit later. <laughs> yeah, right. But, but yes, the the it's kind of strange because a lot of bands from that period now look back and think it all seemed quite easy. It all just fell into place, and obviously at the time you don't really appreciate it for various reasons. One, you think it's normal, and B, when you're young, you're just thinking, yeah, it's just what happens. We just get signed up because in the UK, you know, we had this DJ called John Peel who, you know, was a beacon for this great music that he'd play every evening or about four times a week on the BBC Radio 1. And then we had the music press, you know, the three publications, weeklies, you know, the NME, Melody Maker and Sounds. So, you know, with, with massive circulation. So, you know, bands suddenly found themselves getting a lot of attention and then getting the record deal. And, you know, I think, wow, this is great. You know, who thought this was going to be so easy? Obviously, you know, one comes a cropper later, but you know, that's just details, isn't it? So when you so with the with your first single, did did the band become the main focus for for the the key the key members? Um yes and no. Well, we we had graduated from university, right? Brown University, and we they're sort of more traditional expectations coming from our families about what we were going to do. But we had so much fun with the band and that all these great things kept happening. So we were sort of like, well, we'll do this for five years and see what happens. And five years went by and it was still happening and growing. And we just kept doing it in, until a certain point came when we wanted to have a family. And um, it was a hard thing to swing having having kids and like touring around in a van and um yes i know i i heard suzanne baker talk about taking a child on tour when you know i think it was the second or third album and she said it was it was a nightmare you know you're you're sort of traveling around europe and you've got a sickly kid and you're trying to sort that out and then go on stage and perform and trying to smile when thinking this is not going well actually so I could imagine yes but back going slightly back before all that happens so when you did Who Betrays Me and other happier songs is that was that sort of did that come together over that period from sort of 83 to 80, 85? Mm -hmm. Yes we were gung-ho we were like okay we're doing this and that was our first full-length album and that album we began recording in New York and then the producer moved to, to London. So we followed him and mixed it in London and had a great time. My God, that's right. So that was kind of, um, did you, did you at that stage, how long did you spend in London or did you travel around and visit Europe as well? 
I think we were in London about five weeks. And um, after we finished mixing, the our bandmates went home and John and I remained and we walked all around London and visited every record label there was. And it was very different from New York in that you could make an appointment and go and someone would sit down and listen to your music. And um, so we got heard, but we didn't get any deals. <laughs> I think we weren't there <laughs> to, to perform. Yes. Um, and then we co- we took a few little trips. We went um down and down to um, the south and like near it, we saw Tintagel and we saw the moors and that, and, you know, we just did a little sightseeing. Wow. Uh, So Tintagel, that's, I think that, was that where King Arthur allegedly has his castle, isn't it? I think that's in that Glastonbury area. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't heard that name for ages. We went on one of those trips very long a long time ago looking for sort of Avery and Stonehenge and then Glastonbury Festival and the Glastonbury Chalice Well and we went to to Tintagel I seem to remember but I haven't heard that for decades blimey so you were very sort of um yes that was a good tour you did there yeah it was beautiful so when the album so the album comes out on Fake Doom Records who is that what whose label is that um our f- bass player Nels Johnson. Yeah. Uh, well, who he was the bass player on our first CP. He had started Fake Doom Records with his pal Steve Nyhoff, and they played um in another band together called the Delphonics. I mean the wait, yeah, the Delphonics. Mm-hmm. And and then Steve got into rockabilly and and he had another band that they had created the label to put out their own music. And then when Nell started playing with us, they're like, okay, let's let's put out the cucumbers. Right. And then Nels, Nels no after when we started touring, um, he wasn't interested in touring. And so we got a different brace player, um, Brian Hardgrove, who who became Charles Brian Hardgrove and ended up playing with Public Enemy and uh, had a quite an incredible career so brian is on who betrays me and other happier songs but we were still on fake doom nels liked running the label more than you know wow actually that's that's amazing so who <laughs> so charles is your second bass player who goes into public enemy who was your mm-hmm. first bass player who started the label nels johnson nels johnson right Crikey, and he's your, it says here, executive producer on the album as well. So I never know what these things mean, actually, but um, they sound good, don't they? Executive producer. <laughs> Got to put something. Well, it was through Nels that we met David Young. Right. He was, um, David was was friends with one of Nels' good friends. And it was great in New York at that time. You know, you just could meet so many people and things. Yes. Things- my yeah. God, that's that is that is such a cool story. I love the fact that you've got that connection to Public Enemy. So, um, there you go. Did you did you say Public Enemy and not Public Image? Didn't you? Public Enemy, yeah. Public God, Enemy. Even, even He's actually cool. about to go back on tour with them. I think. There's Fight something the power. I saw on social media, and we're still in touch with him. He he was a huge fan of the B fifty twos, and 
So Brian um, produced a, a few songs with Fred Schneider from the B-52s. Right. And, he, and this was just a few years ago. And he asked me to come in and sing background vocals. So I did. But the 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 recording was never released. I guess they were waiting for some kind of a deal. I don't know. Oh, but anyway, he's still he's still doing stuff, and we're still connected in a very nice way. Well, yes, it sounds it sounds very wholesome. How did the record sell? Did it was it generally well received, and and you sold a bit? It um, gee, I don't even remember how much it sold, but it it exceeded our expectations because we Fake Dream was so small, and. I don't know. I don't remember how many they pressed. In those days, you pre- you had a run of albums that they pressed, and then you'd mm-hmm. go into a second pressing, and it got us a lot of attention. And on MTV and in Rolling Stone, and and then because of that album, we we got picked up by a bigger label, but the, yes. just a, a large independent label called Profile Records. Very fun. They had a, they were primarily a rap label and they wanted yes. to pop music. That's had- right. I remember dealing with them in the early 90s or late 80s, and they were yeah, they had all those um run DMC and Derek B, didn't they? And and right, uh, right. sweet oh yes, yeah, sweet tea. I remember even buying that record, Sweet Tea and Jazzy Joyce. I mean, it was all very groovy. Yes, and, and they were quite not big in the UK, but I do I do remember they were the, one of those labels for a few years that were great. Wow, that's and such a weird friend, relationship, isn't it? Yeah. Our friend Tracy Miller, who was the Fake Doom Records publicist, um, when, when we were signed to Profile Records, they hired her to do publicity. And then, so she that launched her career in the music business that she went on to have her own big... Um, music publicity company and she ended up you know representing the individuals and run dmc and many more super big rap acts so it's it's funny oh that is god it is amazing so when you went into the the studio to record your the second album the self-titled album what was the atmosphere like with the band at that stage oh it was so exciting um we i had well, through our producer, Dave Young, I had gotten a job at a wonderful recording studio in New York called Skyline Studios. And um, Dave worked there as a house engineer as well. And uh, other people, Roger Mutno, who became the engineer for our album, worked there. And so we we had access to the studio after hours when like the full high-paying clients were gone right and, um so most of that was recorded between midnight and 6 a.m <laughs> and, <laughs> oh the cl- classic kind of but, story that yeah. isn't it but um it was a lot you know labor of love for everybody involved because everybody was starting out their career but yes. it, was, it was a really high quality studio and great people it does sound still fantastic today. Sort of 87, this is an interesting period because 87, 
I almost put down as the greatest year of music, but that's a sweeping statement. Yeah. But it's also the the year The Cure had an amazing album, The Smiths, but also The Smiths break up in 87. So there's a sort of a watershed moment. What was it like for you when, when the album came out and then touring with it afterwards? Because a lot of bands start to sort of f- flag, really. They start to struggle to sort of keep that energy going. So what was it like after the album came out? Um. Actually, it was wonderful. We had a lot of um, momentum and we had a wonderful um, booking agent. We were part of um, venture bookings and they had all kinds of great bands um, that we got to play with and tour with and open for or whatever we played with. They might be giants who are our friends from New York. We played with the replacements. We played with... Um, the Pixies, and um, it, it was an exciting time for our kind of music, I guess, this sort of indie pop on the college radio circuit. Uh, and, yes. It was um, it was a fantastic time. I must admit that, you know, there, there was a really nice, that, that sort of five years for me was just stunning. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so you must have been there on the zeitgeist moment. But then, 88, there's a sort of a shift a bit, in, in sort of especially in the UK, you know, the world of ecstasy comes along, and that new next wave of 18-year-olds, 16, 18-year-olds start to come along, and they want their, first, you know, their band that they discover. And then we have the kind of dance scene and Mad- Madchester and shoegazing. What, so did... Did you sort of keep following that trend or was this the point where you were starting the family and the band kind of gets slightly you know, put right. to one side? And it is, well, our first child was born in 1989. Um, and right, right around then we were trying to make a second album with Profile Records, but um, they kept rejecting our, our songs that we submitted. And they wanted us to work with um, this person, uh, Pat Irwin, who's actually a really talented, great musician, um, and to include him in our songwriting. But, you know, we look, you know, there's all these, we, we passed up a million incredible opportunities along the way. This is one of them. Um, we were resistant because... You know, being a couple, the whole thing was sort of like about what we what we did together, and we we weren't open at the time to to to, to that. So anyway, they the A and R guy was sort of frustrated with us. I was just cleaning out um, a drawer of cassettes because um, I was looking for something, and I found I a song I wrote for him. <laughs> and his name was Gary Peeney, and it was all it was like when I gave him like a cassette of a demo of our our songs we were hoping it was like a little little rap I made for him about how he should listen and give us a chance. It's so funny. <laughs> but we went through that and also at the same time, um John had major surgery. He had some lump growing in his his lung that they had to take out. And in those days, Dada saw you open. And so we had a newborn baby and John was like out of commission for a while. And we just sat, I think while, while he was, while he was recovering, 
he was sending out a million demos to every record company he could think of in New York. And, and uh, we weren't getting a response. So maybe it was, you know, that was also things were shifting sort of more towards the grunge sound um, here rather than like XTC. Oh, XTC was super big in the U S but um, so we, we, we we kept it going. We then actually we sort of got into our family. I started writing music for kids with my friend Alice Janice, who had a band in Hoboken called Sex Pod that was part of our scene and it was really great. And Alice has had an incredible career. She went on to play with Psychic TV. Are you familiar with that? Band? Oh my god, yes. Oh yes, that's interesting bunch. Yes. Uh-huh. And um so we were both new moms at the same time, and we wrote uh, rock and roll, original rock and roll for kids, and um, that was a lot of fun for those for those years. And then simultaneously, somebody we knew was starting a new label. Um, Ray McKenzie was started Zero Hour Records, right, and, and he. I guess this was in the nineties. He, he coaxed us back into uh, the studio and, and wanted to put out another record, even though we sort of like, you know, put it behind us in a way I was still doing music. And John is a writer of fiction as well. So he was concentrating on that. Um, But Ray brought us back out again. And he also had a big budget. He was flying us around and we we that's when we brought our kids on tour with us, and that was very challenging. We went yeah. to California, and we would play at a club and get home at like um, four in the morning. But they they had never adjusted to the time change, so four in the morning was like seven in the morning for them. <laughs> so they won't, you know, we never we didn't get any sleep at all. Yeah, that's, um, that is that is true. Just going back, because what was that name? Did you ever? The person, did you say it was? She was in a band called Sex Pod. Mm-hmm. And what Alice, was her name? Alice Janice. G E N E S E. What was that? G E G E N E S E. Oh, good. I'm just, I, I love when people give me a name. You think, oh, that's interesting. Anyway, look, quality that is. Yes. So with your the album uh, the album that came out in was it 94 which is where we sleep tonight. Mm-hmm. The um the cover explain the cover because I think I'll probably guess it now after your previous talk about John but is that um yes where was the what was the cover? That was where, that was his x-ray right a, a chest and then our son Jesse had um made a drawing and this is all kind of complicated. I told you about Alice, her husband at the time, Ivan was our friend and his brother was also a friend. So his brother, Andrew was a designer and artist and he put the X-ray and Jesse's drawing together and changed the colors. And that's what the, that's what the cover is. Yes. I suddenly thought, interesting cover but then you mentioned john and i thought oh that's probably 
it's not so weird after all. It all makes sense now, doesn't it? So when that album came out... There's a song on there called Your Little Rib Cage. (laughs) So that's part... It's not his rib cage. It was about my rib cage, I think. But um, so that sort of tied it together too. Yes, God, was that an interesting album to write and record at the at that stage? Having so much other stuff going on with health, families, babies, trying to keep it all together. Well, it had been quite a few years since our last album, and we had you know songs accumulating. So some of them were from like when the band was still actively performing and touring and we didn't get a chance to uh, release those songs in the world and and then new songs based on demos because we we always kept um playing around and writing writing songs at home yes was it the case then when once that came out that you did some touring and then went back to juggling various plates or spinning various plates before you released your fourth album yeah, I think um, we just didn't have the audience and enthusiasm then in the nineties that we had in um, in the eighties. We did like I did get incredible um, response for Over the Moon, the the children's music band that that was like more exciting at the time. But um, we just kept doing it because it's something that we did together, and then. Um, we, I'm trying to remember how, well, then we put out another album called um, All Things to You. Our friend Roger Mutino, who had been the engineer on Who Betrays Me and who worked at Skyline Studios with me way back. He moved down to Nashville and um, he, he started his own studio and record label and um so we we came out he wanted to put our music out on his label right so that came out that wasn't because you did an album on home office recording records did that come out after oh, right. you know my history better than i do <laughs> <laughs> um home yeah okay that's what happened um that was in the 90s, we were playing um, in this little club in, in New York called the Sidewalk Cafe in the East Village. And there was no, there was like, you know, a handful of people there. But among them was Linus Gelber, who had started Home Office Records. And we became friends. And he was like, oh, I want to put out your next record. And We'd had, when we were with Ray, with the big budget, um, we had recorded a whole lot of songs, but then this is um, Zero Hour Records. He he was more of a big time businessman and he had been picked up by a major label and then, you know, to distribute his label and then dropped and... So he sort of let go of zero hour records and he went off and he did something else. He was, he was more of a businessman. And although he's still connected to music and I'm connected with him too currently, but that's a whole other story. We stay, I stay <laughs> friends with all my music friends, musician friends are the best. 
Um, so we had, Ray gave us the rights. He just gave the recordings that we made back to us since he wasn't going to be able to use them, which was very generous because you hear so many stories of um, bands that have their recordings uh, tied up with labels and they don't put them out, but um, they put so much effort into them and then they can't use them. So that's what the home office records. um, Right. God, that's such a nice one. So that's, um, that was your one, which is, was it total Richard? Yeah. Total vegetality. Vegetality. That's fantastic. So then, I mean, just kind of curious, because there's these kind of spaces of almost over 10 years. Did you just think having an archiving moment in life when you did put out the fake doom years, was that kind of just tidying up your back catalogue? Yes. Um, the Everything had gone digital and streaming and that music wasn't available online. Um, and also the album that, that we had made for, um, all things to you that we made for Roger Mutino's label fictitious records. It's crazy. Okay. His, this record label fell apart because he, he had good distribution and he had someone working for him, uh, managing the label and they, they had several acts. The distributor gave them a check and this guy took the check, cashed it, bought a car and left town. So Roger just was like, forget it. And, and then, but the, the distributor got bought by another distributor and they, they keep that, that music is out there, but we have no connection to it. Not that I would make, you know, more than like, you know, a few pennies off of it, but I don't have ownership of it. It's just like some part of like a big group of titles that get bought and sold. And then when you try to advocate for yourself, you're, you're up against full-time legal team that these um, labels have. So I wanted to claim ownership of my work. Yes. And that's, that's what, that's also why we put out that, um, the death, not the, the death store tapes too, but um, the fake doom years also because that was the music that people had really loved the most and generated the most excitement so. yes oh that's good God, it, it is very complicated <laughs> complicated yeah. I mean obviously I've sort of spoke to a lot of bands who just would love to get you know get the music they made over 30 40 years ago back so they could just archive it kind of clean it up, do a few little things to it and just have it because it's kind of, they feel like it's theirs, but obviously it's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? There's the only well, that... again, Yeah, we were, I'm talking about the, all these long-term friendships and relationships that we developed. We were still really good friends with the people from Fake Doom Records. Yes. And so they just said, go ahead and do it. You can have it. 
Have it, just do it. Yes, I know. Just let go. We've got more yeah. interesting things to to worry about. Yes, I love the fact that you've got your archive and the desk the desk drawer tapes as well, which is also another collection, isn't it? So um it's all good. Yes. You've you've had lots of projects. So how did you then sort of as we entered that wonderful time of the this decade, the 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 lockdown period, how was that for you and, and the sort of your creative flow in life? Oh, gosh. Well, it was, there were good things about it and terrible things about it. But um, right before the lockdown, John and I had been playing together in another band called the Campfire Flies. And right. there were six people in this band, and we were all acoustic. And, or, well, we played electric bass and guitar something, but basically an acoustic band. And we all sang. And they, you know, we were all told you shouldn't be singing in a room with people together during the, the lockdown. So the campfire flies just stopped. And, um, but John and I, you know, we'd been just, he'd been playing a lot of banjo and I've been playing a lot of acoustic guitar. And so we kept playing the songs for fun. And then um, we, there were a lot of, opportunities to do live stream performances for various benefits um, and different causes. And uh, so we just started putting a set together as a duo. And it was some it was great. It was something we could do because we were there there together. And and then um people started coming out to hear music when it was outdoors in the warmer months. And yes. um so it was very easy to, to get outside and perform as a duo too in all kinds of settings. And I've, I just, one thing about me is I just love writing songs. That's sort of like my, my thing, whether or not people hear them or not. <laughs> and so I have like a huge backlog of material. And, and uh, so John helped me um, arrange and get some of these songs out in the world so, um and that's how that's how it happened right this is amazing so is this the collection that is just going to be coming out july 2023 titled old shoes yes mm -hmm. right yes because it's got that kind of slightly alt country gillian welsh Stacey Earle kind of world, hasn't it? It's sort of listening to it. It's, um, yes, it's a quite, it, do you feel like it's been quite a change of direction for you as well? Well, it's certainly different from the cucumbers, but we hadn't been doing that for a long time. And um, on, my, on my own, I put out two solo albums in the interim too, and I had begun collaborating with a friend in Nashville who was more Americana and country oriented. And he sort of pulled my music in that direction. So that yes. to it as well. Oh, that's amazing. Yes. So when you sort of, this is this a seven track album that's coming together. We're starting with got to start somewhere. Can you remember where some of these ideas came from? Like the, you know, like the opening track. Can you remember the inspiration for that? Yes, um, I had just, one thing that I love is um, 
February Album Writing Month. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's an online community where people around the world try and write 14 songs in 28 days and record them, post them, share them with each other in this very friendly community where we comment on each other's work and and um, just go on. So it's, it's been a lot of fun as somebody who loves writing songs because you just, I've done it for quite a few years and just try and crank out these songs and you don't think about whether they're good or bad. Yes. Um, somebody, a friend of mine, told me about this tuning called drunk tuning and it's an open guitar tuning and it's called drunk tuning just because you whatever you play sounds good and you can be totally drunk and it'll sound good too so uh, <laughs> that came from the drunk tuning and I was trying to write a song so it was sort of like gotta start somewhere that, that's that's how I started the song and that. Right. It was that simple. It was that simple. Yes. And then your follow-up sing a song on the album, Old Shoes. What was the kind of inspiration for that? And can you remember how that one sort of came into fruition? Yes. Um, I have a singer-songwriter friend, Rebecca Turner. Um, and We've been doing something wonderful together for quite a few years. We have a group called the Saturday Afternoon Song Swap. And we've met originally, it was like once a month, but then it became once every couple months. But basically, we would invite songwriters to come and perform their new new songs for each other. Anyway, so we're songwriter friends. She put out an album and she wrote, she told me she wrote out a she wrote a song called Water Shoes, and then it was about me. And I thought, Water Shoes. Um, and that put that made me think, oh, I could write a I, without even hearing her song. I was like, oh, writing a song about shoes. What would I do if I was gonna write about shoes? And that's how old shoes got started. And are you quite fast once you get the idea? Do you sort of put it down kind of very quickly? Or do you sometimes work on some lyrics or some music and then sometimes put it to one side and then come back to it? All different ways. Um, I'm trying to remember how that one came about, um, how long it took me. It probably came out pretty fast, but then I refined I refined it, you know, I try to improve the words and the flow and the structure. Yes. And do you present it to the band, you know, with a very clear idea of what you want the the music to sound like? Uh, I pretty much just let people do their thing. I have no idea how to tell people what to do. It's always my way in life, really. <laughs> Excellent <laughs> news. Yes. I'm just kind of curious because I really like that the next uh, track on the album, "Keep on Doing What You Do." Oh, uh -huh. what was the what was the sort of moment that that sort of song came into being? I was playing around with that guitar riff, and um, again, I think that's a song that I wrote in in February in one of those months and. Um, it's a little bit about 
it's just this, this is me. So I'm going to keep on doing what I do. And the people that I love, I love what they do. I want them to keep, keep doing what they do. Yes, it's a it's a it's a nice idea. I mean, the whole album that you've got here has got such a a lovely vibe to it. You must be really pleased with how it's turned out. Well, um, I'm thrilled. <laughs> I'm thrilled. One, you talk about the band. Do I tell them what to play? I never tell John what to play. He's just totally great. He always plays the right thing. And the drummer is our son, Jamie. Jamie, yes. And Jamie grew up, um, a drummer needs to play with people. So he'd play with anyone. So he didn't, he didn't mind playing with his parents. <laughs> and, um, although he plays all kinds of music with all different people. And um, he was at home and he was, he's, he also is training to be a psychiatrist. And you have to take a lot of exams for that. So he was at home studying for exams just to get away from distractions. Right. And he heard us practicing for one of our outdoor live performances. And and he just wanted to sit in with us as a study break um, and play with us. He was home for like a week. So all week, the, all week long, he played with us. And by the end of the week, the, the song sounded great. He He knows... He knows what we sound like, so he knows what to play. And and um I I'd been wondering about these songs, like how how was I going to produce them? Was I gonna put a band together? I didn't have a current band, and and then it was like, oh well, I just I've been playing them like this with John, and we'll play them to get, you know, we'll document what we did, we'll get Jamie to play drums. And um, we asked a friend to play bass, and who had played with me on some of my solo recordings. Is that Rick? All... Yes. Right. That all makes sense. So then, because because I did a couple of months ago an interview with Ray. Is it Ray, Ray Ketchum from the oh. Ma Magic Doll Studios? Oh yeah. So did you? So you went to to his kind of um, place and sort of put all these together. Yes, it's a wonderful studio. God, it is a lovely show. Yes. Yeah. Um, he He's not far. We have a great music community in that little area of New Jersey. Yes. Well, absolutely. You know, I saw, I remember seeing, we did a Zoom in, interview so I could see his little studio. And uh, yes, and he's kind of recording a lot of stuff there at the moment, isn't he? It sounds like quite a, um, yes, you mentioned community. That's that's the key. So, so were you in the studio for sort of a week on this, or were you? Was it less than the week? Oh no, we were in the studio for one day. One day. There you go. Keeps. Because I mentioned that Jamie um, was starting to become a psychiatrist. Well, he doesn't have a lot of free time, and so I just had to get get a day when he was free, and like two days before we scheduled rehearsals with with Rick and um we we the reason we have seven songs is that's as much as we could do in in a day we could have kept going but <laughs> Ray Ray is a dad and I, I think he had to pick up one of his kids from Cub Scouts or something so like he was like I'm sorry I have to go <laughs> that was it 
That was amazing. Yes, well, it does sound good. And the and the album cover, which is also a nice kind of uh, drawing, painting. Whose idea was that? Um, well, I've always we've always used original art for the cucumbers um, album covers, mainly done by people in our family. <laughs> um, and um, the Sherry Zuckerman, the artist is a dear friend that I met through Rebecca Turner, who I mentioned. And she's also part of this wonderful community of artists and musicians. And um, my sister, who who contributed the art for the desk drawer tapes, who I would have, she would have been my first call, but she was busy moving and like overwhelmed with moving out of a house she lived in for many years. So. It's like, oh, I'll ask Sherry. I love her work. And and then Sherry um, had asked us to provide some shoes. She's like, what are your favorite old shoes? And I don't have them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I did throw, I did let go of my old shoes. But anyway, I, I started looking through drawings and artwork that she had done. And she actually had this beautiful drawing of shoes ready to go so it was perfect yes god it all comes up so well that's brilliant so the album's coming out in july what formats will this be will it be Uh, will you do will you have digital download cd will there be vinyl just digital downloads and streaming streaming no vinyl vinyl, never mind and you've got a live date haven't you in august as well so is that with, will you be playing this album or is that sort of another set altogether? Oh, we'll definitely play the album. Right. And we haven't decided that could be our album release celebration. If I can get Jamie to come play <laughs> and Rick, um, otherwise we'll we'll pick another date. But yeah, that's that's another local music series that's... Um, that's fun and nearby yes and then sort of going i mean i know this is still to come out but after this have you got any other plans kind of projects that that are in the pipeline oh yeah um well we have hopefully we'll get back with the campfire flies but some of them are very busy now you know john and tony um baumgartner play in a band called the willies that are associated with the feelies. Are you a fan oh of Oh my them? God, yes. I did an interview with somebody from the feelies recently. Oh. Who's, is there a woman who's in the band? Brenda Sauter. Brenda, the bass player. God, I can't remember. But she was talking about, yes, it was. It was definitely, um, yeah, it was a woman in the band. God, my brain's gone, hasn't it? Really? Oh, it must have been Brenda. Um, yes, that's the one. Brenda's mm-hmm. the one. Yes. And they have a, a bunch of shows this summer, and the Willies are sort of a side group. Some of the people from the Feelies play in yes. the Willies. And, and our friends, John and Tony Baumgartner from the Campfire Flies, are in that group for a couple of songs. So they're sort of tied up with that. But hopefully... Um, when that tour is over, they'll have more time and we can all get together. So hopefully the campfire flies will make another album and the cucumbers. We have so much material. John wants to do 
an album featuring his songs that he's written over the years that haven't come out. And then I have a collaboration with an amazing uh, producer based in Norway. His name is Christian Borgesen. And we've written, um, we've written quite a few songs together and they sound totally different than anything I've ever done because he does work with lots of synthesizers and um, it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, so how did you meet somebody in Norway? Um, I met him through February album writing month. Right. My God, this is exciting. And these, and that is that just from this year, 2023? Well, I've been collaborating with Christian um, for maybe six or seven years. Right. So, so we have a bunch of songs and I'd like to, since they sound so different from everything else I do, I'd like to bundle them all together and, and put them out just as its own separate album. Yes. God, it's so, it's so exciting. So that there's that project and any other, I mean, you, you mentioned the cucumbers, but is, is there anything else that you, any solo albums that are coming out? Um. Yeah. Well, that's next on the list. <laughs> well, that is I I've because I have a, a lot of songs and um as I said, we didn't get to all of them in this last recording. So I'll have to find a way to produce them and release them. Yes, my God, you will have to. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your like 16-year-old self starting out in music, is there anything that you would have said, oh yes, I would have focused on that or concentrated on that or done something slightly different i don't know when i was 16 i wanted to be a filmmaker right there you go <laughs> i don't know and uh, do you still want to be a filmmaker well i get to help with the videos yes well that's good enough isn't it, it sort of <laughs> it sort of soothes that kind of issue anyway doesn't it yeah well that's that's just brilliant I'm so pleased you've got so many projects on it's kind of it's kind of interesting with American bands I don't know if this is the same in the UK but I get the feeling that people are much more kind of fluid from going from one band to another mainly because people kind of just sometimes just have to move away and it's a long way away so you know bands just have to sort of if they want to keep playing music, just kind of get together with whoever is still left in that town or sit or town, isn't it? Whereas in the UK, it seems a bit more different. It's like you have that commitment to a band and then when that breaks up, it's all over. Whereas, yeah, I've noticed that with a lot of interviews where people just go, oh, yes, we're in this band and that morphed into that band. And then that bass player from that band came into us and then they left. And, you know, like K Records is another one where everybody just seems to have slipped into each other's band and then they form a new band and do a project and then move on again. So it's um, it does sound very exciting. It's fun. It's fun. Uh, I think, you know, also at this point, I'm not going to be a, it, it, I'm not going to be a superstar. So I'm just doing what I love and um that's sort of my reason for being <laughs> yes well I think everyone's got that point in life where you think no we'll just do it for the fun of it rather than it's going to um yes create some residency in Las Vegas really isn't it so um so do you have you done or have you got yes yeah, do you did you enjoy touring when you were sort of in full flow with the band I loved it I really loved it 
Um, we went talk everywhere we went. I thought, oh, I, I could live here. There was only one city that we, we would go to that I thought, no, I'll never live here. <laughs> um, but and I won't say because I don't want to insult. No, you can't. <laughs> Not on there anyway. <laughs> okay. um, but, um, you know, it's interesting. In in the U.S., we're very divided now with the North and the South and the blue and the red. And growing up in the Northeast, I was, I sort of like absorbed this prejudice against the South. It's like, we didn't want to go there. We weren't interested in going there. But then when I started touring and going to the South and people loved our music and they were so nice and warm, um, I I loved it. Um, so it was like just great to go all these different places and meet so many people and just like let go of your preconceptions and, you know, everywhere you go, it's just people, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, um, and did you play in um, Athens, Georgia? Was that oh, one of yeah. the places? We yes. loved it. Athens, Georgia was, was so great. And I remember we played at this little club and I don't remember the name of the club at the moment. And afterwards, um, the the manager for REM invited us back to his house and we sat on his porch. I think we were drinking bourbon on a on a summer night in the south. And I was like, whoa, this is uh I, it was just really cool. Just like it was sort of like my picture of what people did. And I was yes, I know. We, we certainly do in the UK think that everyone does that. So um <laughs> Yeah. And did and what and what been did you ever play Las Vegas? Did that ever sort of come onto your touring schedule? Never. Never mind. It was one of those. I mean, it's kind of it's become a very different city or town now, hasn't it? Vegas. I think it's um, yes, it's 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 been taken much more seriously as a as an entertainment center of the world. I suppose. Yeah. There you go. That's good. I know. It's funny you mentioned Pat Irvin. Irvin is it Irvin? Yes, because I did an interview with him recently because he'd also worked on Romeo Void's kind of one of their records. So. Um, oh. So there mm -hmm. you go, dear old Pat. And he's got an amazing history. So um yeah. So it's it's so so nice that you've been able to keep in touch with all the people that you've ever worked and played with and sort of still got good relationships with people. Yeah, not all of them, but most of them. <laughs> most of them, yes. We won't mention the ones you haven't, but oh, oh yeah, no. It's just that <laughs> some, you know, you stay in touch with some people and Others fall by the wayside, but pretty pretty much we've made so many great friends. Yes. Well, that's grand. Well, look, I hope this album goes really well because it sounds stunning. And that, dear listener, is going to be the end of the interview after a few more bits and pieces, but you don't need to hear all that. Anyway, a massive thank you to Dina for giving me the time for that. That's the Cucumbers. And I said at the uh, beginning, they have a new album out titled Old Shoes. I'll give you the link in the notes below. This has been the C86 Show, David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived, aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.